I'm so grateful. I said it before and I'll say it again for J.R. Briggs. Um, we've had the opportunity to have a formal coaching relationship through the better part of this year in which he listens to me, he in, asks incisive questions of me, and just generally gets me unstuck and feeling better every time I come to him feeling stuck. And that relationship began in large part because we began to lean in and kick the tires of it network that he is a director of called the Ecclesia Network. Now, you all have heard of the Ecclesia Network. We've talked about the Ecclesia Network, and we went to the Ecclesia National Gathering earlier this year. JR has helped, and he'll share a bit more about Ecclesia, uh, help this network of relational churches uh, just grow and uh, uh, across America and um, it's been a, a dear uh, blessing to us before we've even ev even officially joined. Um, JR has written several books. Uh, two of them have really impacted myself and Bud. Uh, he wrote a book with Bob Hyatt, who visited us last summer, called Eldership and the Mission of God. It has really informed how we have shaped our eldership team and our eldership candidacy. Uh, and he also wrote a book called Fail. Finding Grace in the Midst of Ministry Failure. I told Aaron Stone at lunch that someone gave me that book, and it's kind of weird to be given a book that says, hey, you should read this. It's called Fail. <laughs> uh, but you know what? I really needed to read that book, and it was a beautiful encouragement to me, and he has been a beautiful encouragement to so many pastors across America, even started some conferences called the Epic Fail Conference. So he has just been a gift to the church in North America, and he is a gift for us to be here uh, to share with us. So I'm so grateful for his friendship, his mentorship, and for his time this evening. So let's welcome JR again as we hear from him. Thanks, brother. Well, it is great to be with you all. I, one of the things I love about my job is I get a chance to um, be with different congregations and communities around the country. Uh, each one is very different. And I love that. I think that's one of the beautiful things of the body of Christ. And uh, so it's a great privilege to be here. I appreciate your warm welcome, even though I'm from Philadelphia. And uh, you, may, you may have Dak, but we have Carson Wentz. So we're quite happy about that. And, uh, uh, but I'm so grateful that, uh, you know, the good thing is, is that God's grace is so enormous that we can still be brothers and sisters despite being Cowboys and Eagles fans uh, together in that. So, but as Adam said, uh, yes, greetings from the Ecclesia Network, and it is a privilege that I have to do that. I'm a pastor in the Philadelphia area, but half my time I get a chance to, to uh, encourage and partner and equip with different churches around the country. So as you all are leaning in as a church, uh, I just want to say something that I wasn't paid to say, and I absolutely mean it. Uh, I love Adam and Bud. I love Adam and Bud, and it's been a real privilege uh, for me to get to know them and to um, don't think it's a one-way street, though. They have encouraged and equipped me as well. And uh, that is an incredible privilege. So thank you for allowing me to, to be here. I also know Kathy and Sid Kiesler. And uh, I'm actually spending the night at the Kieslers, even though they're not here. So just to tell you how much I know them and love them. Um, but I'm actually good friends with their son, Keys, uh, as well. And uh, was ju just actually down in Miami at the church that he founded two weeks ago. And uh, so it's, it's great to be here. I, we have benefited our church from the Ecclesia Network. And now it's a privilege to be on the other side where I now get a chance to, uh, to help equip and partner and cheerlead and encourage and, 
and help other congregations. So uh, it's wonderful. And uh, I am so grateful you are leaning in uh, to the network and in the process of uh, potentially joining uh, the network, which we would love to have. That's no pressure. I'm just honestly, we mean that. We would love to have you a part of that as, as you all discern that uh, moving forward. And I've heard that you all have recently gone through a name change, uh, the Neighborhood Church. I love that. And I will be honest with you, if I didn't love the new name, but I do love the new name, and I think it's, it's just wonderful. So nicely done. Uh, I, I think it's both descriptive, inviting, and a challenge for you all moving forward, that you would be the church in the neighborhood. And uh, I hope that would continue to be the case. And I, I thought of, in John chapter 1, in the message translation, and I'm sure Adam and Bud have mentioned this before, but the idea where it says, and the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. And may you all be that in this neighborhood here in Garland. And um, I also think about something C.S. Lewis wrote. Next to the blessed sacrament itself, your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your senses. And, uh, and may that be the case. So uh, let me pray and, and then we'll jump into our passage. Father, thank you for the privilege it is for me to be here and uh, I thank you for the Neighborhood Church, Providence moving to the Neighborhood Church, and uh, so grateful um, for the privilege. Um, because even as I visit different churches, my view of God, of you, God, grows because I get to see so many different expressions and contexts, but one same God. And what a beautiful picture that is. So I just pray for continued blessing and continued outreach and continued trust and continued um, hope and faith in the risen Christ uh, proclaimed and trusted through this congregation. And uh, it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Uh, amen. Amen. Well, if you have a, a Bible, I want to encourage you to turn to Mark chapter 5. I'm going to give a little bit of uh, background information here in Mark chapter 5. We do this at our church a lot. Uh, I lived and studied in Israel for a semester, and I found that once I understand the geography and the history and the culture of what's going on, and then read the passage, the passage just comes off the page like a children's pop-up book uh, rather than just ink on a page. And so I'm going to give you that uh, background information here in a couple slides in just a second. But I want you to think about the four biographies of Jesus, uh, the four Gospels, and I want you to think about them like Netflix categories, all right? So Matthew's kind of like the foreign film section. Matthew is writing uh, to a Jewish audience. Most of us in this room, I imagine, are not Jewish, so we need a little bit of help in terms of a f foreign films of some uh, subtitles and some context around Matthew. Uh, Luke is just a good old drama. You want to go watch a good drama? Uh, you go to the Netflix section of drama, you'll find Luke. Uh, John is the science fiction section. Not that it's fiction as in not true, but sometimes there are some, some, some bizarre things happening in John. Eat my flesh and drink my blood and so, you know, logos and all these, some very unique things that go, in, that, that go on. But in Mark, Mark is clearly in the action section. It is like shoot them up, blow them up, bang them up. I mean, it's shortest book, but so much action. There are crowds everywhere. There's drama. There's tons of stuff. And so we've got to understand as we enter into this biography of Jesus in Mark, this is the action section. This is the action section of the biography of Jesus. Now, um, I'm not a Greek scholar, but there's a very important Greek word we need to understand, and it's the word oikos. Can I hear you say oikos? Oikos, you see that up here? And it simply means family or household, friends, your sphere of influence that you may have, your, your circle of relationships that exist for you. Um, 
within your household. It's kind of like a large extended network or family, the circles of relationships that you run in. You have an oikos. It may be big or small, but you have an oikos. And uh, I want you to be aware of that oikos, um, this network of relationships that exist in your life, both friends and family, um, and that God has placed you very specifically in an oikos to steward your oikos well. Now, I don't know if you know this, but a part of your oikos, and I figure since you're called and going to be called the, the neighborhood church, you need to know you, every one of us live in five neighborhoods. Did you know that? You live in five different neighborhoods. And I think as the neighborhood church, it's good for you to be aware of that. And, and I think I've got a slide of that. Here are the five that you live in. You live in a geographic neighborhood. neighborhood. Of course, that's what we immediately think of, right? Um, known in a neighborhood of people where we're intending to be hope just as we live out our, our days that have an address in a zip code, right? You have a geographical uh, neighborhood. But you have a familial one, uh, extended family. This could be aunts, uncles, grandparents, second cousins. Think of family reunion. That's your familial neighborhood that you were born into. Um, and it can be incredibly strong. Uh, in certain parts of the country. You have a relational neighborhood. Do you like dogs? Do you go to farmer's markets? You know, for us, those of us that like the Phillies um, and commiserate <coughs> about the Phillies and how bad they are. Um, maybe other parents within your, your kid's school or you naturally bump into people just around town as friends. Um, that's your familial neighborhood. Uh, sorry, your relational network and your relational neighborhood. Um, but there's a psychographic neighborhood that you live in. And it goes like this. You meet people at the gym because you like working out. You have a shared interest. You like video games. You meet with others who like video games. Um, you like knitting. You connect with other people. Those within, uh, even like young, young families, right? When you're, when, when you're newly married, you hang out with newly married. You start having kids and you, you, you end up hanging out with other people that have, have young kids. You're retired. You end up hanging out with retired people. This is the way you think, your psychographic neighborhood. And then lastly, the digital neighborhood. Um, and uh, there are certainly ills to social media, but it can also be a great benefit of people that you know uh, through Twitter or Facebook or Snapchat or Instagram, whatever it may be. These are all really important for you all as you enter in as the neighborhood church to be aware of these and the ways in which you can steward wisely and with hope the message of Jesus Christ. And uh, I just want to encourage you and, and, uh, to think through that. And this directly impacts the passage we're going to look at. Some of you are thinking, why are you telling me this? Hold on. It'll make sense in just a moment. But I want to give you, as far as geography, a little bit of a background to what's going on um, before we look at this passage in Mark chapter 5. Now, Israel, the country of Israel, is only the size of New Jersey. It's not very big at all. So much uh, global and political implications in such a small pocket uh, of the world, uh, the size of New Jersey. Now, in the northern part is an area called the Sea of Galilee. It's a bit of a misnomer. It's not a sea. It's a lake. Uh, you can see it there. Uh, the bottom is uh, the Dead Sea, and then uh, here is the Sea of Galilee. It's 13 miles north to south, and at its widest point, 8 miles east to west. Um, sometimes in our Bibles, it's called Lake Kinneret. Kinneret is the Hebrew word for harp, shape of a harp. It's kind of cool. And it sits in a bowl. You can't tell from this Google Earth uh, map, but if you were to go sideways, it would just, it would just look like a giant bowl that it, that it sits in. It's uh, beautiful if you ever, ever get a chance to go. Um, but the massive storms happen in the midst of this, even on a lake where the hot air and the cold air come down into the lake and then come back out in this bowl, and it's called inversion. Hot air and cold air, when they're trying to change spots, 
cause incredible storms, even in the midst of a lake. And uh, significant fishing industry, of course. Now, if you look on the western side of the lake, over on this side, I don't have my pointer with me, but in kind of the upper uh, northwest corner up there is Capernaum, where Jesus, Jesus' hometown, very Jewish on this side. So it's very, very monotheistic, right? They serve one God, and they would be, there would be tons of synagogues there. Very Jewish, uh, in their in orientation. Now, on the eastern side of the lake would be Greek, not Jewish at all. It wouldn't be monotheistic. It would be polytheistic. Tons of pagan temples would exist there. They would also do things like farm pigs, which wouldn't be found on the Jewish side because they would that would be unkosher. So even you've got this lake here, the difference between one side of the lake to the other is ginormous in terms of cultural differences. It would be like saying, and they crossed over the Rio Grande River. Right? You're going culturally, new language, new money, new customs, new, new everything, even though you're just passing over a geographical location, it's a world of difference. And this is what's happening on the lake. And it's very important for us to know these cultural differences. Now, there are 10 cities, 10 Greek cities, the Decapolis, Deca meaning 10, Polis meaning cities, these 10 cultured cities that exist on the eastern side of the lake. And uh, a couple of those, Kersey and Hippus and some of these others that are over there, very, very, you know, art and drama and um, just even pagan, huge pagan festivals and evidence that have been found there. Um, so it's kind of a west side story, east side story kind of thing. You know, you, you kind of, the posture is you stay on your side of the lake, I'll stay on mine. I may be able to look across the lake and sort of see, but we're never really going to interact and connect much. You stay there, I'll stay here, and everything will be, be fine. Now, with all that background information, I want you to keep that in your brains. And now that you've turned to Mark chapter 5, I want to read the passage because that background information is going to have incredible Uh, implications on this reading. And as I read this, one of the things we do in our congregation is we stand to read Scripture. And so I'm going to encourage you to stand. Uh, If a a dignitary walked in, one of the ways we would show respect would be to stand. Um, But also, it it brings us to attention when we stand, ready to move and walk. And that's what Scripture does. It calls out to us. And so we should be ready to move and act on what we hear. So as we're standing, let me read uh, from Mark chapter 5, verses 1 to 20. And they went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an evil spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. And he shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? Swear to God that you won't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, Come out of this man, you evil spirit. And Jesus asked the man, What is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. And he gave them permission, and the evil spirit came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. 
Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this to the town and countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. And Jesus was getting into the boat. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him, but said, Go home to your family and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And all the people were amazed. These are the very words of God. You may be seated. I hope, you're, I hope the lights on your dashboard were lighting up here of connecting some of the dots in terms of the background information. But let's keep our Bibles open and I want to actually go through this and draw some parallels out because scripture is, scripture is both a window and a mirror. Every time we read Scripture, we should see what's going on, a window into the world of the first century, but a mirror that we hold up to say, what does this mean for us and what does this mean for me? And so let's look through the window and at the mirror at this. So right in verse 1, we see that they went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. They went from the west side to the east side. Now there's a culture clash here, right? We just talked about this. Now there's so much here. Now in college, I wrote a 20-page paper on this one verse. (laughs) Now I'm not going to unpack all that here, but just just to understand that he's just going into foreign territory. These These Jewish disciples, these teenagers, by the way, probably hadn't interacted much on the other side of the lake. They had heard about it, but Jesus is going on a cross-cultural field trip saying, come along. This would be new for them. And when Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an evil spirit came from the tombs to meet him. So right away, Mark wants us to notice the connection between this crazed man being not good, coming from the tombs to remind us of death. Notice the connection. Mark's really trying hard to see that this crazed man who had incredible strength, no one could resist him. He was a cutter, very self-destructive. Think of the fear that would strike your community if you knew this guy was on the loose. Trying to put your kid down to bed and you hear, Mom, what was that? Honey, it's okay. Think of the torment. Think of when someone's on the loose. In any community, we haven't found him. Please say, stay inside. And this is all the time of what's going on with this man. Incredible strength, lots of fear. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he'd cry out and cut himself with stones. Um, look, ladies, if you're dating, just some dating advice or looking to date, this is not the kind of guy you want to come home with and introduce to mom and dad. Okay, this is some severe problems uh, that, that he has. Then he sees Jesus, he runs to him, he falls at his feet. Now think of being a disciple and watching this unfold. Here's your rabbi, your teacher that you trust, and all of a sudden there's this crazed man that's running down the mountain to Jesus. Like, What are you doing? What are you feeling? What are you thinking if you're one of these disciples seeing this happen in front of you? I'm sure your eyes would be huge. Your, your heart would be racing. What is going to happen? What is going on here? And the admission that he makes, Jesus Son of the Most High God. And we don't see it, you you see it here, but throughout all of Mark, here's the crazy thing about Mark. Do you know who understands who Jesus is more than anyone else? 
the demons. If you look through Mark, the demons get who Jesus is right away, and it's the knucklehead, slow-learning, thick-skulled disciples that they just, it takes them forever to understand who Jesus is. Mark wants to see the balance here, the irony that's going on. But he makes this admission, Jesus, Son of the Most High God. Now, Jesus could have done a whole bunch of stuff, but what does he do right away? He asks him a question. What's your name? I'm not sure that would have been my first thing that I would do in that situation. But someone who's been so depersonalized, Jesus gives him his personhood back. What's your name? What's the first thing that Jews in the Holocaust were stripped of? Their name. What were they given? A number. They were depersonalized. When someone uses your name, there's value in it. Jesus is wanting to value this guy that no one else values, but they're fearful of. What's your name? He doesn't shun him. He doesn't curse him. He's not afraid of him. He humanizes him. And the man says, my name is Legion. He probably says, my name is Legion. You know, or something crazy <laughs> like that, right? Because Legion means many, right? In other words, there's many demons in me. That's why my name is many. And it says, and he begged Jesus again and again not to send the demons out of the area. And there's some serious authority awareness here going on. When you beg someone else, it means you're acknowledging someone else has authority over you. If I said to my wife, will you please give me permission for me to go to the bathroom? I beg you. She'd be like, what are you talking about? Just go, right? But what do inmates have to do? They have to ask for permission to go to the bathroom. Why? Because there's authority, there's authority difference there. When you beg and you plead, it means someone else is an authority. The demons have something to teach us here. It's pretty amazing. So you see this, you know, there's no bold or italics or caps in the original language. The way you added emphasis was to repeat words or phrases over and over again. Do you notice in the reading how often begged and pleaded was used? Multiple times. In fact, if you have your Bible, circle it, underline it, notice it. It's there. Mark wants us to notice the power play, the authority play at work here. It says a large herd of pigs was feeding on the hillside. Scholars believe this is one of the uh, earliest mentions of, uh, of uh, a bacon factory, uh, which is very exciting for me. Um, now again, why were pigs nearby? Because on the Jewish side, you wouldn't find them. They were unkosher. But on this side, this is where you'd see it. Who knows if the disciples had ever seen pigs until this moment? We don't know, but they certainly wouldn't have been around them. In fact, they might say, this is contaminated land. Let's just get out of here. We could be ritually un- unclean. I mean, this is new stuff for them. Jesus takes them on this field trip, and there's all sorts of stuff where they're going, can you believe we're, what are we doing here? And the demons have this weird request. Have mercy on us by sending us into the pigs. It's kind of a weird request, in my opinion. Now, ancient Jewish belief was that the the abyss, or where the demonic world lived, was at the bottom of bodies of water. 
So when a big storm rises up on the Sea of Galilee, they're immediately afraid. Why? Because they think the demons are mad. That was really deeply embedded in the psyche of Jewish folks. And so what does Mark show us here? The demons go into the pigs. The pigs don't stay on the hillsides. What do they do? They run back into the water. They return to the abyss. I think it's kind of humorous. Maybe it's kind of sick. My wife thinks it's kind of sick. I'm just looking out and seeing 2,000 sets of hooves just like bobbing like in the water, you know? Think, let me think how much like pork that is, you know? Just bobbing there out in the lake, you know, dead. By the way, that's a lot of loss. That's a huge financial loss for some farmers. That's huge. 2,000 crazed pigs. I'd love to see that running down the mountain. Ah, ah, wouldn't you just love to see them just... Woo, and then the man, verse 15, sitting there, dressed and in his right mind, and it says, and all the people were afraid. They might have been relieved, but they're still like, what just happened Who is this stranger from the other side of the lake? And are we next? What does it say in verses 17 and 18? It says, And the people began to plead with Jesus to leave. More authority. Please, please. You've caused enough. There's so much fear. There's so much damage. These, this farmer has lost so much. Can you j- please just... We don't know who you are, but you have freaked us out. And Jesus, in all humility, does something astonishing. He actually obliges. He didn't have to do that. But he begins to get back in the boat. Now, all this is great, but it all comes to the crux of these last three verses. 18, 19, and 20. I want you to really focus in on this. It says, as Jesus was getting into the boat, the man, who had been demon-possessed, who's now in his right mind, begged, there it is again, to go with him. And Jesus did not let him. Stop right there. Why not? You talk about good PR. This guy was messed up. There's immediate transformation. You bring someone like that over to the other side of the lake and say, you wonder if my ministry's valid? Ask this guy what happened. This guy's a walking billboard for credibility of Jesus' ministry. And Jesus says, nope. Why? Is Jesus being mean? What does he say to him? 19. Jesus did not let him, but he said, go home to your family And tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. Let me read it another way. Go home to your oikos and tell them all that God has done for you. The word right there is oikos. Go home to your sphere of influence. Go home to your neighborhoods where people know you. And you know what? All of a sudden I realized Jesus isn't being mean. He's being strategic. 
The man doesn't know any of Jewish customs. He doesn't know the language. He doesn't know anybody over there. Jesus realizes his most powerful, effective ministry and impact is not for the man to get in the boat and come with them. It's for him to stay exactly where he was and go, wait, I remember you in sixth grade. And I remember being freaked out by you two years ago. Who are you today? Let me tell you who I am. Let me tell you who I met. And let me tell you how I'm different and how you can be too. He went back to his oikos, his spheres of influence, his neighborhoods. And he told people he did exactly what Jesus asked him to do. Verse 20, so the man went away and he began to tell in the Decapolis the ten cultured Greek cities all who, all who Jesus was, what he had done. And it says all the people were amazed. Jesus isn't being mean. Jesus is being strategic. He understood the power of the man's oikos. Presence, proclamation, and posture. All are the ways in which we live faithfully as followers of Jesus in an oikos. I love this. The most significant part of this story isn't what happens in this story. It's what happens a few chapters later when Jesus comes back to this area. Do you know what happens to him? He is mobbed like a rock star. Why? Because the man did what Jesus asked him to do. His oikos, he stewarded well. And he said, this is who I was. You guys remember? This is who Jesus is. This is what happened to me. He stewarded his oikos. When he gets back on the other side, he's mobbed like a rock star. He can't go anywhere without trying to hide. He's so popular. The man did his job. He obeyed Jesus. Think about the man's neighborhoods, familial neighborhood, geographic neighborhood, relational neighborhood, psychographic neighborhood, no digital neighborhood, but can you imagine how that would be trending? I mean, think about that. That'd be unbelievable. So if Scripture is a window and a mirror, we've looked through the window, now let's look at the mirror. Who's your oikos? What would it look like if the neighborhood church, every one of us, individually, personally, collectively, was serious about our five neighborhoods? Praying and pleading for and wanting to steward those relationships well. What would that look like if your sphere of influence, your already existing relationships, were stewarded well? And you might say, well, I'm not a pastor. I don't do that. I've never been to seminary. I don't know my Bible. I don't even know certain books of the Bible. I... And guess what? It doesn't matter. You have the, a person living inside of you called the Holy Spirit. And we can trust the Holy Spirit. He's our friend and our guide to every follower of Jesus. Do you realize you have more influence in your oikos than Adam or Bud will ever have in your oikos? Let me say that again, because this is really important. Well, I'm not a pastor. They're pastors. They're super Christians, paid to love Jesus. They're professional Christians. I'm not. No, no, listen. Your oikos, you steward that well. That is more influence in your oikos than if Adam and Bud were to join your oikos. 
I don't care how big or small your oikos is. It is. It's there for you to steward well. One of the ways, one of the most significant ways we can live out the truth so absolutely is by seeing our oikos as our mission field. The boardroom, the classroom, the playroom, the living room, whatever room you're in, that's your oikos. And what, it, what does it look like if you were to take your mission field seriously? Not overseas, but across the street. To the person in the cubicle behind you, to the customers you interact with on a daily basis, to the young moms you hang out with. One of the phrases we have, the little mantras that we say to kind of make some of this stuff sticky in our community, is we say that everyone is a missionary cleverly disguised as a good neighbor. You are a missionary cleverly disguised as a plumber or an attorney or a bread truck delivery person or a stay-at-home mom or dad. You are a missionary cleverly disguised as a good neighbor. Which means that if we think like a missionary, there are three really formative questions that we need to wrestle with every day. Where are you coming from and where are you going? To whom are you being sent? Your oikos. And why are you being sent? Imagine if you all wrestled with that regularly. Where are you coming from and where are you going? To whom are you being sent? And why are you being sent? Do you know what group of people does this better than any other? The Mormons. They're great at this. You know what they do to their teenagers? They give them a backpack and the map of their neighborhood and say, go for it. Now, there are some significant theological differences with the Mormons. But I've got to say, they probably steward this idea of missionaries and their oikos better than anybody I've ever met. But what would it be, people, what would it be like if people who believed in the risen Christ, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ did that? kind of dent could we make in the kingdom of God by the power of the Spirit? You know, the thing that I, I love about this is I love the fact that uh, Jesus didn't say, you know what, th- those people on the other side of the lake, like they're dirty people. They're pagan people. They're defiled people. And we don't want to be defiled, so we're going to let them be over there and we're going to let them just do their thing. But I love that Jesus was willing, as a good Jew, to go across to the other side of the lake in a place where Jews weren't willing to go. To connect with someone who lived in the tombs and screamed and cut himself on the verge of death and saw transformation happen. The beautiful thing is, I love that Jesus went to the other side of the lake of heaven and actually came down to be among us, a defiled group of people who were living in tombs, who had no hope and no future, who are doing destructive things in our own lives and is willing to be gracious enough to us to actually enter into our world. And after transforming us, you know what he says? Go back home to your oikos and you just tell them. You don't have to memorize these amazing things. You don't have to have brilliant theological answers that seminarians have. Just tell them what happened to you and how God has been gracious to you. Just do that. Tell your story. We have been redeemed 
And he says, now you go tell people what redemption looks like in your life. That's all I want you to do. And that's the challenge for us. So um, I told you, I, I studied and lived in Israel, and I, I remember um, during my semester in college when I lived there, being over on the eastern side of the lake, you can visit the location where they believe, archaeologists believe this happened. It's quite a steep cliff that runs off into the waters. You can sort of envision those pigs just, you know, diving off the edge of that cliff. And I remember sitting there, and we read the passage, and our professor said, I'm going to give you 10 or 15 minutes before you get on the bus, walk around, read the passage. And I remember there with, with tears in my eyes as a college student feeling like this. We were towards the end of our semester, and I'd be going back home, and it was a life-changing semester for me. And I remember Jesus saying, this is your commissioning. I want you to go home, and I want you to tell people how you've been totally transformed by this semester. I was a different person when I came out. I with tears in my eyes. That was my commissioning service as a college student. I got home, and my, my grandfather uh, lives uh, just a couple hours away from where I went to college in Indiana. And uh, not a Christian, or, you know, my grandfather was great, but he just had some anger issues, and there were certain triggers, two things you never talked about. You could talk about the weather, you could talk about the Cincinnati Reds, you could talk about any sports you wanted. You just, politics and religion, just, you do not talk about it. And anytime it would come up, he'd just push himself away from the tail very awkwardly and angrily stomp out of the room. You just knew growing up, you just didn't talk about those two things. And Grandpa invited me to, to come. I, I live very far away from home. I uh, went to school very far away from home. And Grandpa said, why don't you, like on a weekend, just come hang out? And uh, I threw my pictures for my picture album in. This is before, you know, when we actually had pictures and picture albums. And, uh, and, and, and I just threw them in and wondered if, if he would want to see them. Um, and, and we were there on Sunday morning. Of course, we weren't going to church. Um, it just wasn't his thing. And he, I said, Grandpa, have you ever... Uh, have you wondered, like, why Israel was, like, so amazing for me? Would you want to see my pictures? He's like, yeah, I'd love to see your pictures. So I get talking with him and showing him pictures, and, and I just said, Grandpa, um, you know, one of the reasons it was so amazing is, is because, of, uh, because of Jesus. And I was like, oh, no. And my heart's, like, racing, you know. And he's just like, uh-huh. And I said, well, um, you know, Jesus, like, I just, I just want to tell everybody because Jesus has done so much in my life. Wow, that's cool. I said, you want to know more? He's like, yeah, sure. So the first time in 30 years, my mom had prayed for 30 years that her dad would come to faith. And 90 minutes later, I had the chance to pray to see my grandfather come to saving faith in Jesus. It was one of the greatest moments of my life. And I... <laughs> I remember uh, stopping at a gas station and, and getting to a payphone and calling my mom. Uh, I said, Mom, are you sitting down? Um, and I said, uh, I said, your dad just became your brother. She said, what? I said, I had a chance to, to see Grandpa cross the line of faith. I've never heard my mom weep so much. 30 years of prayers. And what hit me after I talked talk to my mom and I drove back to campus, you know what came to my mind? Go home to your family and tell them all the things the Lord has done for you and the mercy that he's had on you. I thought it was like my neighborhood's 
Little did I think it would be my literal family. And about five years ago, my grandfather passed away, and my brother and I had the opportunity to do the funeral for my grandfather and had a chance to tell a whole room full of people that story and what God was doing in my grandpa's life. He was still rough around the edges. He had a long way to go. His sanctification process is probably still going on in heaven right now. <laughs> but it was amazing to be able to steward that story well and to remember back to my commissioning service on the side of that hill on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee and to be able to steward that well. And I pray I'm still stewarding that well in other people's lives, in my own oikos. And so my challenge to you is, aren't you so glad that the God of the universe decided not just to stay on his side of the lake, but to come to you in your defiled state, in your defiled region, (laughs) and love you anyway and transform you, and then say, I'm not going to let you get in the boat with me because you got some work to do in your oikos. And I'll be with you. And I've given you a gift called the Holy Spirit. And you don't have to have all the answers. And you don't have to be in all these theological arguments and debates. All I want you to do is tell your story of all the things that God has done and the mercy he's had on you. So I just, neighborhood church, I just want to challenge you with that. I want to challenge you that you would steward your oikos well. Let me challenge you this week in your small groups or with your spouses or your friends, to actually take those five neighborhoods and actually write down who are the different people in your oikos. Begin to pray through those. What if you made five index cards, each one of your neighborhoods, and you just began to write down and pray through those oikos spaces in your life? What would that do? What if that was something you had a time of prayer over the next few weeks as you guys met on Saturday nights to pray for your oikos names. And say, would you, would you pray for me? I'd have the courage to steward my oikos well and to just share what God's done in my life. So who's in your oikos? How do you steward it well? And may you hear the words of Jesus saying, go home to your oikos and tell them all the things the Lord has done for you and the mercy that he's had for you. Let me pray. God, thanks so much for this story. In some ways, it's kind of freaky with uh, demon possession and 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 dying pigs and all sorts of stuff. But God, we are so grateful for the many, many ways in which you have come to our side. You've been patient with us and we're on the verge of death spiritually. When we've been spiritually self-destructive and you rescued us from that. And then you've said, now go back to your own oikos. Thank you, Jesus, for having enough patience, for having enough hope and enough trust in us to go back to our oikos and steward it well. May we be that, may we do that. And when we don't get it right, may we embrace the grace and the patience that you've extended to us. May may that motivate us to go back out and to continue to try to steward that well. So we thank you for the fact that uh, you've come to our side of the lake. You didn't have to, but you did because you love us. And we celebrate that now here these next few minutes. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Well, I know you all end with a benediction, and we end with one as well. And uh, I want to encourage you, if you're physically able, to stand with us with the benediction. You may or may not know this, but the benediction is two Latin words squished together. Bene dictus. Bene, where we get beneficial or good. Dictus, where we get dictionary words. It's the good word or the good saying as we go. And oftentimes, hands are raised. You know where that comes from? It actually comes from the synagogue, 
rabbis, as a way of giving a blessing to someone, would put their hand on their forehead, on the top of the head, and say, I bless you, I bless you, I bless you. So when the little kids come to Jesus, what does it say Jesus did? He touched them. He's putting a blessing on them with, their hand, with his hands. So the rabbi would raise his hand, simply saying, there's too many people in the room for me to go around and say, I bless you and bless you and touch all your heads. So symbolically, to raise the hands to say, I bless you all as we go. Depends on your denomination or your tradition or your background, what's the most important or significant part of a service? You know, some would say worship or communion or teaching. In our congregation, we think it's the benediction. Because we've received, but it's not for us. It's to turn around and now go give it away to the world, what's been entrusted to us. It's not just for us. We say we're not here to be buckets, we're here to be pipes. What flows into a bucket stays in a bucket. That's not the role of the kingdom follower. What flows into us, just like a pipe, should flow right back out of us. So would you look at me and would you receive the benedictus, the benediction as we go? Brothers and sisters of the neighborhood church, go. And as you go, may you steward your five neighborhoods well. May you remember God has given you a specific oikos. And may you take that seriously. May you trust the Holy Spirit and may you be inspired by this man, formerly named Legion, that Jesus humanized by asking his name, by transforming him, who actually stewarded Jesus' challenge in his life well so others could be changed. May you steward your oikos well. May you be the neighborhood church this week individually and collectively. May you steward that well and may you hear from Jesus, well done in stewarding your oikos, good and faithful servant. God bless and bless God. Amen. Amen.